Well, we're still continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I want to begin today in a little bit different way. Although, I don't know if there is a different for me. I've begun in all kinds of different directions. But there's a very interesting painting that can be found in the Louvre Museum, which happens to be the largest art museum in the world. It's located in Paris, France. It's also the home of the famous painting of Mona Lisa. But the painting is titled, The Money Changer and His Wife. It was painted in 1514 by one of the Flemish Renaissance artists by the name of Quentin Massey's. The painting is that of a moneylender uh, and his wife, but it's in a special, what's called a special genre type of painting. And that's paintings that depict everyday life. And it was actually a very popular form in the Netherlands uh, during the 16th century. And another common device used by uh, Macy's in this Matsy's in this painting was the inclusion of a moralizing undertone. Now, Metzies was actually one of the founders of this form, and many believe that this painting is making a commentary on society, the society in which he lived, its particular vices as well as the weaknesses of humanity. Centered in the painting is the man and woman who are staring intently at something in the man's hand. And scattered across the table you can see are uh, gold coins, there's a a black velvet box, there's a a watch, uh, all kinds of things, a glass canister, just various objects of things that would be considered of value. Uh, But if you look more closely, you'll also see a convex mirror and a scale, which many believe uh, the art historians who have examined it say that this is possibly a reference to the scales of the Last Judgment and justice. That's very probable. Uh, But notice also the expression on the woman's face as well as the religious book that she is holding in her hands. Uh, You say, well, how do you know it's a religious book? Well, if we hone in closer, uh, you can see that the picture is that of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. Uh, Just remarkable detail. Uh, Even to the point that it's almost, you know, you would almost think that if you were able to hone in more, you'd be able to read the script uh, of the painting itself. Now, one of the questions uh, regarding it is what's actually going on in this painting? I mean, the man appears to have paused while weighing the coins and, and the wife seems to have been distracted from her reading. And I think it's with the the loss of interest in her religious text and what appears to either be a look of disdain or at least minimally fascination with the rich objects that her husband is pouring over. I think that that is what Metzies is trying to point to. 
how in his day, which we'll come back to, uh, Antwerp, where he was living and where this painting was made, had become an international community. And there were a lot of people who had gone there trying to flee the Spanish Inquisition. And as a result of that, it was very important that they had these money changers or money lenders uh, to help with the international commerce that was increasing at the time. And along with it, the greed and the oppression that accompanied the love of money. Several years ago, and I can't even think how many years ago it was, uh, and you can't figure out how old the kids were, but a friend of mine who's an attorney uh, down in eastern Kentucky, in the hills of eastern Kentucky, uh, Jack called me and said, hey, I just happen to have two extra tickets. Would you and your wife like to go with, with us to see a Bob Dylan concert? I said, yeah, be glad to. And so we went with them to the concert. Uh, at one point during the concert, my wife turned to me and she said, I can't understand hardly anything he's saying. And I said, well, don't worry. When he was young, you couldn't understand hardly anything he was saying. Uh, kind of the nature of his voice and the raspiness and how he sang. But uh, this painting reminds me of one of Bob Dylan's songs. Uh, it's a 1964 song. Uh, that It was titled, It's Alright, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. And actually that song contains the lyrics that have become so popular that they're included in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations as well as the Columbia Dictionary of Quotations. In that song is the line, money doesn't talk, it swears. And what that means is that money not only has an influence, but it has great influence, even a perverse influence, if we allow it to. Now today, we're looking at the last half of chapter 5. And as we begin to move into this text, I've titled my message for this morning, From Corruption to Correction. And the text is actually divided into two sections, the first of which, verses 8 to 17, deal with the corruption that the Solomon or the writer of Ecclesiastes saw. And so that's where we'll begin our, our journey today. Uh, from the corruption, and then we'll move on into the correction. And I think the first thing that we see when we look at the text is the dilemma of oppression and injustice. Verses 8 and 9, if you have your little uh, copy of Ecclesiastes in front of you, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. That is, a king committed to cultivated fields. I think that Matzies 
saw how easily money can pull our souls away from the worship of God. Now all of us feel that tension at one time or another. We know that God demands our highest allegiance. We believe that nothing is more, impre- more precious than the message of the Gospel, the forgiveness of our sins, and the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, we're easily distracted. Sometimes we would rather thumb through a mail-order catalog than listen to what God has said in His Word. Uh, offering time. How often are we or do we become tempted to say, well, I'll, I'll make up on my tithe later, God. Uh, right now, there's this thing that's more important in my life. And instead of beginning by setting aside that tithe and living off the rest... We tell God, well, we're going we're gonna to borrow from your tithe to do this or that, and, and then hopefully we'll get caught up. Solomon wants us to help us in this spiritual struggle by showing us the vanity of money. And he starts out talking about the injustice that people suffer from the very structures of society. You know, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, when have we not seen that, to be honest? Now, I understand, and and you know me well enough by now, we've completed four years. Last, uh, just yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, that little memory came up that it was four years ago that I accepted the call to be the minister here. Already four years have been completed. But, But you know how firmly I believe that there is a difference between those who are poor and being oppressed and those who are wanting to be poor because of all the handouts that society offers and all of the ways that they can become basically just dependent on, on the state and the handouts. And I'm obviously not in, in support of that. Uh, and, and Kay can tell you because I've had I've called her in on some of the discussions that I've had when people would come wanting help from our needy family fund. I would help them, but I would also question how, how much are you coming having come in, and where is this money going? How are you spending it? How can we help you to be wise stewards of what you have so that you won't be dependent on others for handouts? Uh, the old wise saying, you can give a person fish or you can teach them to fish. And you know, part of our responsibility is helping those who are in need learn how to work out of that on their own, to get control of those finances. But our teacher sees something that we all see. He sees oppression and injustice at every level of society. We see it in the political systems when the state tries to seize control of the means of production. But we also see it in in free enterprise when profit is pursued without regard for the well-being of other persons. Somehow, poor people always seem to get the worst end of the bargain. And Ecclesiastes tells us not to be surprised by the vanity of this injustice. Now, that's not an excuse 
for unrighteousness is simply being realistic about life in a very fallen world. What's hard to understand for me is exactly why we shouldn't be surprised by all this injustice. I mean, the text refers to an official hierarchy. One who is over, who has somebody else who's over them. But it's not clearly uh, stated clearly why this causes the injustice. Uh, maybe, maybe the issue is government bureaucracy itself. Tremper Longman, who is one of the real good conservative uh, commentators on the Old Testament, he says that this has to do with what he calls the red tape. It's the red tape interpretation. And somehow, a multi-level bureaucracy always tends to open a door for injustice. In the words of one scholar, he said the verse is about the frustrations that we experience when there are endless delays and excuses while people cannot afford to wait. Somehow lost between the hierarchy. I am learning patience. I'm not learning it very well. But I'm learning patience. I have had a habit of being one of those who filed my taxes at about 11.30 on April the 15th. Part of it was rebellion. Because I've always seemed to have had to have written a check to go with it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to keep my money till the last possible second. Part of it had to do with procrastination. But this year, this year I said to my wife, in March, I said to my wife, I got taxes done. I went back and checked. They approved it on March 24th. We haven't gotten our return yet. Still being processed. And we get impatient, don't we? And you know, I know that a few dishonest people can profit from corrupt practices. But everybody benefits when there is some kind of organization involved that is being functional. I mean, the ideal is to have a government that's honest and efficient. But that's the ideal, isn't it? Lord Acton once wrote to Bishop Mandel Creighton way back in 1887, power tends to corrupt. And then he went on to say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Solomon's investigation bears this out. And in fact, he begins to describe what one writer has identified as the dis-ease or the disease of affluency. Verses 10 to 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You know, it's virtually impossible for you and I as average people, to even imagine what immense wealth is like. 
Bill Gates, creator of the Microsoft empire, is estimated to be worth over $60 billion. The children of Sam Walton, founder of Walmart, are all reported to be worth over $74 billion as a group. And there's little doubt, comparatively, that Solomon was as wealthy as any multi-billionaire in our generation. But here's the thing. Money attracts money. Well, the Queen of Sheba must have known that because she traveled great distance to come to Solomon and actually brought him a small fortune. But there has to be a point where wealth becomes so vast that it all of a sudden becomes meaningless. And I think the Apostle Paul is echoing what the writer of Ecclesiastes has here when he warns that young pastor, Timothy, of the dangers of wealth. He writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, you've heard that verse misquoted. I know you have. The love of money is the root of evil. Not money. Money is not the root of evil. It's the love of money. And he's issuing a warning to the wealthy. But did you notice how he also understands that increased wealth means increased expense? And it also means increased responsibility. And we can see that if we look back at Kings and and Proverbs, at the lifestyle that Solomon was living, his projects, his marriages, his servants, his bodyguards, all consuming a part of that fortune that he had. Jesse and I had an anniversary trip that we took. And little did we know at the time that our anniversary coincides with another very important date. Our anniversary, by the way, is August the 16th. Now, if you are a music person, you know that August the 16th is the death of Elvis Presley. And we chose to take our trip down to, of all places, Memphis, Tennessee. And fortunately, we had my mom and dad's camper because the closest we could get to Memphis, Tennessee was about 40 miles outside of it where there was a camp spot. But while we were there, we took a little trip uh, down to Tupelo, Mississippi. And while we were at Tupelo, Mississippi, we visited that little two-room shack where Elvis Presley grew up. We not only saw Graceland where he died, but we saw the two-room shack where he was born. A two-room shack and a mansion. I had the privilege, and I consider it a huge privilege. I had the privilege of getting to know 
J.D. Sumner, uh, the great bass singer who is in the Guinness Book of Records as being the lowest bass singer ever, uh, sang for a while with a group called The Stamps. They sang backup for Elvis Presley. And uh, J.D. and I were sitting backstage at a concert that he was singing at on my behalf. I hosted a concert on uh, New Year's Eve years ago uh, in Memorial Auditorium in Louisville, Kentucky. And the Stamps were my main group, uh, draw group. And J.D. and I sat back there, and it was shortly after his wife had passed. And so he was sharing from his heart. And J.D., shared with me how Elvis Presley always wanted them to sing gospel songs in the evening after the concerts were over. And his favorite song that he always wanted sung last was the song Sweet, Sweet Spirit. There's a sweet, sweet Spirit in this place and I know that it's the presence of the Lord and yet when he died he was full of drugs prescription drugs J.D. shared that he had gotten to the point where he could not sleep without medicine to go to sleep. And he got to where he was taking so many of those that then he couldn't wake up without medicines to get him awake and get going. And he died of an accidental overdose of drugs in his system. Why? Why? because of laboring to keep up a lifestyle to which his family had become accustomed, to which his manager and his fans expected. And we can see this too in the instance of many proud entertainers who have struggled to pay off debts of their lavish lifestyles or to settle their tax debts that they may or may not have had legitimately. But Solomon also provides us a comparison of the lifestyles. He says one man exhausts himself physically. Whatever he eats is burned up in the process. His toil is hard, but simple and untroublesome. And he sleeps well. Some of you are old enough to remember. When on the farm... You worked hard and you worked all day long until at night you came in and got something to eat and fell asleep. And you got up early and you went right back to work. And you did that six days a week. Do you know that there is a direct statistical correlation between the amount of free time that people now have and the rise in criminal activity and that when places of employment start giving three-day weekends with four-day work weeks, that increases even more, increases the 
the worker absenteeism as well as workers who are getting involved in problems. We're not made for leisure. We're made for work. And we've lost that work ethic in many ways in our society. He says the other man doesn't even have to break into a sweat and yet he cannot sleep. Indolence and indigestion may be the cause, but underlying it is something that cannot be cured by exercise and diet because those people are driven. Driven by the market. Driven by things. Wanting that bigger, fancier vehicle. Bigger, more expensive house with more rooms. And with that brings the darkness. Anxiety, futility, and resentment. Verses 13 to 17. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He came from his mother's womb. He shall go again naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. You see, wealth can bring great anxiety. And our writer calls it a a severe evil, a grievous evil. And that severity is also echoed by the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 3 verse 19. He says, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. Why? Because they were hoarding. Hoarding their wealth. And hoarding one's wealth, even if it's just in his mind, he it always makes him think about uh, what are, what hoarders are left after him, and he's actually losing in reality. A worried man, even though he might look great. Bernard Levin once described John Paul Getty. You know who John Paul Getty was, rich man. He described him as someone who, quote, went about looking like a man who cannot quite remember whether he remembered to turn the gas off before leaving the house. Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 5. A man must control greed in his mind before greed controls his mind. In fact, many people work themselves into the ground in order to secure their future. But what future? One writer described it as hands that frantically grasp hold of riches of this world that will be empty in the grave. So the preacher uses the term carry away in his hand. I think maybe it resonates with Psalm 49, verses 10 to 12, and Isaiah 5 8, where both the prophet and the psalmist speak of God's impending judgment on those who add house to house and field to field. 
and the stress and the anxiety produced by unfettered materialism. Hear me now, I'm not just talking about wealth. I'm talking about the love of that wealth, being controlled by that wealth and those things. It's simply laboring for the wind. But we're not left there. Our writer moves on to the correction in verses 18 to 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of our toil with which we toil under the sun. The few days of our life that God has given, for this is His law. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power should enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil. This is the gift of God. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. Did you notice the correction that's being provided? The balance that's being brought into the text as Solomon makes it clear that wealth is not inherently evil. The root problem is in the attitude of the heart and the mind. Compare the vocabulary. The first section, love silver, love's abundance, riches kept by their owner, labored for the wind. But in this section, God gives. God has given. Gift of God. God keeps him busy. See, in the previous section, wealth was viewed from under the sun. But now Solomon is saying, and he's encouraging us to raise our eyes and see it in a different light. (coughs) We're stewards. We're stewards. You don't know how much of a blessing it is to hear someone say, you know, I came to the realization that God's blessed me with a few other things and I realized that I need to be tithing Him out of that, not just my check from work. The tithe is the minimum. In the Old Testament, you read it, the tithe is the minimum. It went way beyond that in so many different ways. In fact, as he goes on to tell us what he's seen, Solomon says, nothing has materially changed, but the attitude toward it has. Happiness comes when we recognize, when we recognize that all we possess belongs to God. I learned that from my father. My father had a brand new vehicle. And a young couple that he had just married went to start their car that had all of the cans and everything tied to it and their luggage in the back ready to head out on their honeymoon. And the car went... And the bride started crying. And the groom was trying to assure her, we'll get this worked out somehow. And my dad walked over and said, I'll tell you how. Open the trunk. And the guy opened his trunk and dad motioned to a couple people and as he was opening his trunk on his brand new vehicle and said, put their stuff in the trunk of our car and he handed that young couple the keys and he said, it belongs to God anyway. Go on your honeymoon. 
It's not ours. And the more you try to hold on to what you think is yours, the more the rest of it will soon disappear. Paul summarizes this for us in 1 Corinthians 3. When he writes, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And he further takes these instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 when he tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Going on to urge them to be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. You see, if God chooses to bless us with wealth, It's for His glory. I mean, I could talk about several people this morning. I could talk about a man by the name of Joseph Rank who spent a fortune in building churches and missions. I could talk about the Cadbury brothers who established a factory and a whole community that was years ahead of its time, but he provided good facilities and living accommodations for all of his workers. Samuel Colgate, Henry Hines of the Hines uh, Tomato Ketchup Business made sure that their businesses were built on ethical principles and contributed generously to God's work. In fact, Henry Hines summed it up well when he said, I am looking forward to the time when my earthly career shall end. I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will as the most important thing in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, in which were the unusual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God. To Him I attribute my success I may have obtained during my lifetime. And He gave away His fortunes to those who were in need. You see, it's all a matter of focus. If our emphasis is upon our gifts, then they'll consume us and ultimately destroy us. If our emphasis is on the giver, the gifts are peripheral and can be used for His glory. I I, want to close with this. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's my closing question. Is the God of peace with you? If not, maybe we need to go back. Let's pray.